0: At the Harpers Ferry uh, Ministerial Study Group, which meets in November, that I go to yearly, um, this year we discussed the future of Unitarian Universalism through Reverend Fred Muir's lens of the Trinity of Errors. And the, the errors, again, which I will process through with you today, are individualism, exceptionalism, and an allergy to authority and power. Does anybody recognize any of that? First, of, I, would, I thought that I would talk about the growth of faith and generically, but looking at deepening Unitarian Universalism can speak both to the movement of our faith and the movement of oneself to deepen in faith. So I thought that looking at these trinity of errors, and then, of course, we're going to you know, come out into ways to, to remedy them or balance them. Uh, That would correspond very well to our own faith journeys, to aspects of one's own faith journey. So the first one, individualism, he says, we are being held captive by a persistent, pervasive commitment to individualism. And it made me think of a story um, when I was serving in White Plains where I um, decided to start a Christmas Eve service. They didn't have a Christmas Eve service there. And my colleagues said that, you know, six people are going to show up to that. No one's into Christmas Eve here. And when I, uh, you know, when I offered it, 200 showed up. (laughs) But so we did a Christmas Eve service, you know, December 24th. And after the service, someone came up to me and said, I was very disappointed that you didn't talk about the solstice. And that is an indication of the kind of individualism that we're talking about, that that night was about Christmas Eve. you know, if there was a solstice thing, it would have been about solstice. But the whole idea that each Sunday or each service, you have to be individually fed or it's a failure of the service. That is something because we do um, impress upon people to have an individualized faith to come to their deep knowing of what they do, what they're compelled to believe, and that it's important to figure out what you believe, that sometimes is translated into only sitting (coughs) in a, a congregation when things are actually feeding you. Whereas if we go to beloved community, something might not move you. But if it's moving someone four seats down, that's a good thing. That nourishes you. That nourishes all. Of um, all of the beloved community, and so that is something that I think we need to go to. Um, one of the things, of course, when they talk about Unitarian Universalists, that you know the singing isn't good because they're always looking at the next line to see if they believe in it, you know, so they can't <laughs> they can't do any harmonizing or anything other. It's that kind of thing. <laughs> Taken to an extreme, it creates an individualism. That um, that we start to think that we're all on our own, we start to close down and think that what we can rely upon physically, uh, uh, emotionally, and spiritually, is ourselves. And when we start to do that, we start to, um, you know, and and there are very capable people in Unitarian Universalism, but we start to have our own little islands of being and believing. And there can become a loneliness along with that. And that's something that is true in our culture, in North American culture. Um, There was a study within the last 10 years by sociologists at Duke University and the University of Arizona found that one out of every four Americans have no close confidants at all. On average, most adults have only two people they can talk to about the most important subjects in their lives The study revealed that we're getting more isolated. Americans have a third fewer close friends and confidants than just two decades ago. So it's likely that they are living lonelier lives. One out of four people, think of it, it could be 20, 25 or so right here in this room right now. If we reflected the national average, one out of four adults in our society do not have anyone they feel they can share intimate information with. 25% of our nation do not feel they have a trusted friend. And that's something that, of course, a faith, a beloved community, can help heal. This also leads to what is starting to happen that is even a little bit more troubling, which um, many of you may have seen the recent survey done last um, November, and I think it was revealed in USA Today and some other places, that only one-third of Americans say that most people can be trusted. One-third. Half felt that way in 1972 when the General uh, Social Survey first asked the question. Forty years later, according to an AP News survey, reveals a record high of nearly two-thirds who say you can't be too trusting in dealing with people. Two-thirds of our people in in, in our culture Don't feel that others are trustworthy. An overextension of individualism leads to that lack of connection, which leads naturally to distrust because there's a lack of familiarity, a lack of experience in coexistence. When we're used to doing things on our own, we step into unknown territory when we're asked to share an experience with another, when we're asked to do something that may not exactly feed us then we start thinking that it's just playing better to handle it on our own. Now this can happen at work or at home, a hesitancy to share a project or life changing circumstance and it can happen to us in faith, it can happen to us spiritually, that we have to handle this all on our own. And then we start to feel that, that there isn't any other kind of help, help in community, help in prayer, Help in uh, bringing our own sense of love around us, and so sometimes that has been true in Unitarian Universalism. And some uh, Fred would say that it um, started a lot in Emersonian. You know, we're very proud of having Emerson in our in our heritage. But when he talked about self-reliance and he said, "No law can be sacred to me, but that of my nature," when he first heard that. He felt liberated. He was in a, uh, a religion that didn't say, you are special, you belong, you have faith, you have inherent worth and dignity, which is something that's very important in our faith. So when he first heard, yes, I have to rely on myself, it was liberating, and he loved it. Another rendering from self-reliance, trust thyself, every heart vibrates to thy, that iron string. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. Now, I don't know, maybe I was projecting or um, Born and Bred You You, when I think of Emerson talking about self-reliance, I always thought of the big S self, the over-soul self that he talks about, that we are all connected, that there's one big unity that he was calling self to rely on. But often it, the people talk about it is small s self, and maybe that is what he meant, we just rely. On yourself. Now we can do that as privileged people. Privileged people can do that more than others. Some folk don't actually need community to be able to uh, buy their bread, although they need a, a job or whatever, but, but there are ways that we can feel or that we can actually um, delude ourselves in believing that we're not interdependent, that we only can rely on ourselves. And this can be very Um, lonely-making. Because when we don't ask for help, when we don't let ourselves be vulnerable, when we don't say, actually, I need you like you need me, eventually, no one is helping anyone, and the world loses much of its creative spark, its surprise, its discovery. Because it's all predictable. If we're just in charge of our lives, we're just in charge of our spirituality, if it's all just coming from our limited point of view, Then the surprise, the discovery that happens in encounter will go away. So we lose a sight of our interdependence. We lose sight that we breathe with the trees. We're not doing this all on our own. And the connections beyond that we cannot see, we start to not believe in. And sometimes that means we take more than we give, and we spend much of our energy on surviving. And this keeps us uh, in a place where we can encompass our world that we can handle. And so that makes our world small. In the Psalms, as some of you might have read, the Psalms were written primarily by folk that were out in the desert. So they would be out in the desert looking up at this huge expanse of sky and realize their own vulnerability. And so then out would pour all of this awe and wonder and glory and also fear and even paranoia. Some of the Psalms have some paranoia in them. But it was about I am, you know, alone and I am small and I am connected and isn't that a glorious thing? And that's how people started to find religion, trying to find faith communities. So that's one of the errors of our trinity if we um concentrate too much on individualism we will stay small the second error don't worry it gets better but yeah you know, it's a little bit of medicine here <laughs> is exceptionalism exceptionalism which is you know we are um we are the evolved faith we are you know brighter we are you know better we are you know, wonderful. And some of that is evangelism, which is good. You know, yes, you would like what we have to say. You would like what we are. That's good. But when we start to think that we are better than others, that doesn't work. And I found that out in my work with marriage equality, actually, when I started a, you know, I helped start with a Baptist minister, Jill McCrory, an interfaith, a statewide interfaith group, to work on marriage equality wonderful, rich group of people. And there was, in the beginning, I worked on for about seven years, I would use language like, I mean, Obama used it too, but it was for himself, but I would use language that had to do with, basically, if you see the world the way I see it, you have come to an evolved way of seeing. (laughs) And fortunately, I don't even remember who, but I heard it and it went right in a colleague, an interfaith colleague, said that one of the things that bothers them about Unitarian Universalism, and this wasn't after I had said it, so I was lucky, and <laughs> I sort of, oh, okay, is that they think they're the evolved species, that they think they have it over others, that they think they're, they're greater and grander and smarter. And, um, and I don't, you know, I mean, we do a lot of work with social justice. I mean, I think that this is, but that's a perception that is given. So I then started to work my language, not to say, you have to come to where I come because then you'll be evolved, but to try and open up, try to share what it is I believe, and try and influence the other and say, don't you see this? Isn't this great? Equal to equal. And when that started happening, the faith group got larger. We had some really wonderful prayer breakfasts, saying also, I mean, there was once this Baptist minister got up and started talking about marriage equality, pounding and go, it. and it was just, just wonderful. <laughs> equality, you know. And so, and that, it, once we did that, then things settled into this wonderful, powerful group of people. Another thing from Fred as unique as our experience with Unitarian Universalism may be, it is not the only way. We must stay conscious of how we explain, defend or share lest we come across as elitist, insulting, degrading, isolating, even humiliating of others. The I Church's exceptionalism is a barrier to share the good news of Unitarian Universalism. Many years ago, my brother was on a panel at General Assembly, and the panel was, I think it was like twelve years ago or something people who had never graduated from college. And one of the women on the panel admitted to this group that she felt more ashamed that it was so much harder for her to come out to Unitarian Universalists as someone who hadn't graduated from college than it was for her to come out as a lesbian. Exceptionalism. We have to watch how we might be dismissing the unenlightened, out of hand. One time when I was, uh, this was before I was a minister. I was living in New York City and um, in the Lower East Side. There was a soup kitchen nearby, and I decided to start um, volunteering there on Saturdays. It's called University Soup Kitchen, and we would serve about 600 people in about three hours. And it was we would it was really fun. I mean, I was a waitress as well, so. Um, what we would do is we would serve them the food at first, and then we'd serve the tables. We'd, we'd serve them, you know, as, like we were waiting table. And they would come and go, you know, over and over again. And we always had bananas, and for some reason, bananas was always a problem. You know, for some reason, there wasn't enough, there was too much, they wanted more, it was too bruised, whatever. And there was one day where I was just fed up with this whole banana thing. <laughs> and one of the clients came up and and pointed a banana at me and he said either you're part of the solution or you're part of the problem <laughs> and, and then he walked out of the soup kitchen and i was like in whoo, you know don't dismiss the unenlightened out of hand okay so the third error is anti authority Um, And one of that is that has been something that historically has caused, because we believe that it matters what you believe and that it's important to manifest what you believe in your lives as Unitarian Universalists and that the kingdom of God is from within and that um, we have to uh, apply our lives to creating a peaceable kingdom. Because we believe that, um, we have Often done a lot of work in terms of the size of our denomination, there are far, far, far more people that are ha- actually have been leaders in social justice movements. Um, I think we have four presidents, even you know that that uh, because of that. But one of the things that's a problem, especially earlier, was to gather a lot, like a gaggle of UU ministers, together to do one thing. And, for example, during the abolitionist movement, universalists were a little bit better. They, they were a little bit more uh, able to open themselves up to uh, beloved community. They had a denomination that spoke against abolitionism very uh, easily. In Unitarian, the Unitarians could not because of a sort of an anti-authority thing. We had first started just as a group that would send out tracts to each other and say, "This is what I think. This is what I think. Let's talk about you know a discussion group." Basically, is what we started out as a, a Unitarian Association, uh, the um, the Association of Unitarians, American Association of Unitarians. But it took a while for us to become a denomination that was willing to give out joint statements that many people believe. It took. A long time, and we're still working on that. um, For us to be able to do that, and that's an anti-authority. That's don't tell me, you know, don't tell me what to believe, don't tell me what to do. And some of that is very good because that means that you're thinking for yourself, that you're looking at what you're told about how to believe, and you're seeing if if you really do believe it. I mean, in Buddhism, it's the same thing. You must integrate it and believe in it in order to live it. But Um, On the other hand, again, it's one of those things of pushing away the unknown by saying, you know, don't tell me what to do, don't tell me what to to think. Because if we need to always be in charge, we will again be limiting ourselves to whatever we're willing to know, whatever we're willing to see. So sometimes it is important to defer to the wisdom of others, to defer to a new way of being. For example, um, the whole nonviolence movement that started in India, and then of course here with Martin Luther King, that happened because of a deference to Gandhi. That happened because people said, Yes, you have a wisdom, tell us how. You know, and then when Martin Luther King Jr. was able to gather, garner many people together, it was a deference to uh, the authority of his words. Um and then we were able to do that. One of the things that happened when Martin Luther King Jr. called a, you know, ministers from all over the country to come down and march in Selma, the UU ministers, Unitarian Universalist ministers, did by droves, come on down there and say, yes, this is something that we can all believe in and we can move together. And what a powerful statement that was. What a powerful movement of being that was. And it came from deference to a larger thing than what you individually think. So individualism, exceptionalism, and anti-authority. What then are the um, remedies? Well, I started to talk about, in terms of individualism, a sense of beloved community a sense that we are interdependent and that if we um, see our interdependence in the lens of love and in the lens of honor, then we can expand out from our own individual way of being or we can, it's a unique way of being that is a part of this larger, wonderful matrix of being, you know, this context of mutuality that we have and that can spread us out further, and that can help articulate um, articulate in our ways of being that people are welcome, all different kinds of people are welcome. It was funny yesterday, I, uh, well, not funny, but I went up to Princeton, um, to my old stomping grounds. I grew up at the Princeton Unitarian Church, and a childhood friend of mine, her mother, died, so I went to the memorial service there. And it was full. The service was, I mean, it was packed. And then in the narthex, they had more um, chairs. And in the middle of the service, which happens a lot in Unitarian Universalist uh, memorial services, there's a time to offer for anybody who wants to speak to speak. And sometimes that works out really well, and sometimes it goes on and on and on. Um, And the person had asked, please be brief, but, you know, it was when somebody would stand up, They would start to talk beautifully about Dana and then sort of how they knew her. And they would be very individualistic sort of in in what they were sharing, which in some ways was just so powerful. And then in other ways, when it would go on and on and on, it was like, you're in a whole group of people. So at one point, the minister did have to say, we're going to only do a couple more. and, uh, And if there's anybody in the narthex that would like to speak. And so then... A person comes, you know, the the guy with the microphone goes over to the edge of the room and the guy from the Northics comes out and he just very humbly steps just a teensy bit into the room. And he says, after we've heard these really long things, he says, I have come to honor a lady who knew the highest wisdom and that was kindness. It's what the deaf can hear, it's what the blind can see. And she manifested it beautifully. And then he just went back in and was like, "Whoa! Who was that? <laughs> who was that wise one?" And that is sort of, you know, he demonstrated, you know, a deeper level of faith, where we're all in this together, and that the memorial service wasn't just about Dana or the people that knew Dana, but it was about um, kindness. It was about that manifestation that Dana was. And um I just thought, saw that that's beloved community. That's sharing and seeing that we're all connected and can learn from one another. In exceptionalism, one of the best ways to do that is to enter into pluralism. And pluralism is a little different than multiculturalism. Pluralism is about acceptance, not tolerance. We can tolerate people if we're individuals and you know, politically correct, and then go home and not ever have them involved in much of our lives. If we accept people, then we're inviting them into our more inner layers of life, and we're coming to them and saying, who are you really, and how do we encounter one another? And that's really where pluralism is. Pluralism is not a, um, an exercise in diverse coexistence. Pluralism is an engagement of one, another li- one another's lives. And when we do that, exceptionalism will go away right away. It just, it just will. And then the other thing, the, the anti-authority, um, Fred says that imagination helps that. And that's what I was talking about in terms of the psalms. If you just step back and think that you're not in control of everything, that there is this expanse that we're vulnerable within, then we won't suddenly want somebody to tell us what to do and what to think and follow one authority. But we will be open to things that we do not understand. We'll be willing to step into unknown territory. We don't have to know everything before we learn it. You know what I mean? We don't have to um, be prepared to come to something new. We just have to be willing to come to something new. When I was, my very first gig was in uh, Hollis, Queens. And the first day, um, I walk in, you know, fresh out of seminary, and the um, a place was robbed. And there were, you know, leadership folk, folk in the leadership, and they were sort of. Embarrassed and trying to clean up my office, and I strode right in and I said, "Put me to work. Tell me I can handle anything." But you know, and so we had this wonderful time together. And then within the week, I can't remember whether it was the next day or within that next day, I get a phone call. And again, I've just been you know ordained, so it's um, I get a phone call, and it's uh, the person on the on the line says, um, "Are you the minister of the church?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah." I'm the, I'm the minister uh, of the church. <laughs> yes. Uh, this is the hospital, and there was a fire. And two cousins, aged seven and nine, were succumbed with um, a smoke inhalation. We have to take them off the ventilators. Will you come and pray with us? Oh. So I hung that up, and I had to say yes. I had to just step into that unknown territory and let grace ride me through it. Now, if I needed to be prepared for that, I wouldn't have gone. If I needed to uh, feel better than the others there that were dealing with this, like, you know, how could you have these kids in the fire, whatever, I wouldn't have been there. If I felt that I was the only one that had to do this and could control this, I wouldn't have been there. I just had to walk in free, and open, and clear, and loving. And, and ask how I could help. And that's the kind of work that we need to do to deepen our faith. To come to a vulnerability, and a courage, and a centering of the love of life. We deepen our faith by stepping into the unknown, and believing in our natural ability to navigate, field, and nourish the self. In beloved community, in interdependent logic, with love of life. Ralph Waldo Emerson said All I have seen teaches me to trust the Creator for all I have not seen. So may it be. Amen.